Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Brian Levitt joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. He's a senior strategist at Oppenheimer Funds. Brian, great to see you. Good morning. Uh, here in New York. Let me ask you, first of all, just how you're paying attention to what's going on uh, in Washington. I'm sure that you, like the rest of us, just curious what's going to happen here. But from an investment perspective, uh, what do you make of what's going on? Well, we're all obviously trying to read the tea leaves, and everybody's uh, paying attention probably a little bit more to to how bills become a law. You remember that from uh, our uh, – uh, what was that song we used to sing? <laughs> Schoolhouse Rock. Schoolhouse song, exactly. Rock, right. Yeah. Um, and so I, I like to look at things from the perspective of the bond market. Um, I think that, you know, early on there was a reflation trade in the aftermath of the Trump election and, and 10-year rates were going higher and, and the composition of returns in the equity markets favored small caps, it favored value. And that was all on the expectation of pro-growth policies. And you've seen that reverse, David. And obviously it's reversed as we deal with the realities of governing 10-year yields in um, growth outperforming value, emerging markets outperforming the U.S., large caps outperforming small caps. So that's the market dealing with the realities of governing. And as an investor, we have to pay attention to this. You mentioned the bond market. We've seen the equities market pull back a little bit this week. It seems like the equities market's reevaluating what's going on. What's happening in the bond space? Is it paying as close attention to, to D.C.? Yeah, the bond market's paying a lot of attention, yeah, not yeah. only to policy um, coming out of or legislation coming out of Congress, but also uh, what the FOMC is going to do. Because, you know, we've we've had a Federal Reserve that's been a very accommodative for a long time. And when they tried to raise interest rates or when they did raise interest rates at the end of 2015, long rates came crashing in down to 135 and um, investors were concerned about a recession. And as soon as the FOMC backed off, long rates started to go back up again, the dollar abated, um, the economy started to do well. And then when Trump won, uh, rates went up to 260. So short-term rates have been going up on expectations of, uh, of, uh, of a tightening Fed stance, uh, long-term rates down a little bit. So we have to pay attention to that because if this is a reflation trade, if we're going to get pro-growth policy, we shouldn't see a flattening yield curve. You should see a steepening yield curve. Is, is this an FOMC that, that wanted to raise rates or had to raise rates? Well, they were able to yeah, raise okay. rates is the way I think we <laughs> yeah. should put it. They were they were comfortable with a 4.8 or 4.7 percent unemployment rate. Um, you had inflation expectations behaving and, you know, break evens on tips climbing. Um, you had credit spreads that were generally behaving and you had a dollar that was relatively stable. So, you know, if Janet Yellen uh, wants to leave her predecessor ample room to lower rates, if we ever have another recession in this country or, a, or another a disruption in economic activity, this was the window to do it. The problem now is um, if you extend out the dot plots to where uh, the Fed governors believe it'll be in, in 2018 um, and 10-year rates don't move, it signals the Fed will likely have to back off uh, from the three rate hikes this year, or the four rate hikes next year, or, or whatever they're, they're signaling. We were talking with Tony Dwyer yesterday of Canaccord Genuity uh, about the, the prospect for a correction in the equity space. Are we seeing one now? Are we near 
Simon, what, what, what are you seeing when you look at the equities markets? Well, I, I think, uh, I mean, corrections are obviously very hard to time. Um, you know, a lot of investors are, ask me, how come we haven't had a correction for so long? That's yep. actually not true. Um, we did have a pretty meaningful correction from uh, from the summer of, of 2015 into February 2016. The S&P 500 was down about 15%. If you excluded Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, you were probably down 17 18%. So we have had a correction. Um, they are hard to time. What we've been telling investors since the beginning of the year is that there's going to be a pause in markets, um, primarily as we deal with the realities of governing. There was simply too much excitement around tax cuts, fiscal spending, and you know, all of a sudden we're sitting here, it's March, we're dealing with health care, and we're going to start thinking about the midterm elections pretty soon. Right. So it, it, it's the, the markets are uh, um, dealing with that reality. Sobering to, to realize <laughs> we're right back to it. You've got a whole note that centers on uh, what you tell clients who are fearful of getting into this market right now because they're worried about getting in too late or, or facing the kind of correction we were just talking about. What is the advice that you give them? Well, I think the first thing is that investors always believe that they're living in the most uncertain of yeah. times, and they always come up with a, a variety of reasons to not be invested in markets. And, and as we were saying earlier, you know, at the beginning of the, of the recovery, it was China's too strong, dollar's too weak, we don't have enough oil, I don't like the president. And today it's China's too slow, um, the dollar's too strong, uh, we have too much oil, and I don't like the president, right? So um, they always come up with rationale. What I remind people, even if you got a big, if you inherited a big sum of money in October 1987 on the eve of the, the, the massive correction. Um, if you had put that money in that day, that put $100,000 in, the next day you have 75000 today it's worth $1.3 mm-hmm. If you had put in a few thousand dollars every month, you would be worse off than had you just put it in on the day of that correction. A couple of ways to segue into talking about energy here. Just want to flag that TransCanada has gotten a presidential permit for the Keystone XL pipeline, that crossing uh, the Bloomberg right now. That's something that President Trump had promised we were expecting to happen. So that news uh, official today. I'm looking uh, at Brent right now as well at 47.93 a barrel. Uh, how are you watching? How are you regarding energy uh, right now? Or the lack thereof. There lack, or there lack, the lack of energy. Is, energy. Uh, exactly. You know, we, I, I believe we're in a secular bull market for equities, yeah. and we're in a you know a, a malaise for commodities. Um, we're, malaise. There's certainly no no shortage of supply, um, and you know the dollar's relatively strong, and in a in a strong dollar world, uh, particularly given that commodities generally trade in dollars, yeah. um, it's a it's a headwind to commodity prices. Ninety-eight sixty-six. Oh yeah, Tom is in a March Madness malaise. His, his malaise. Uh, my my Wolverines <laughs> lost last that's night. True. So that was, was not a good was, night for either. I'm of you heading gentlemen. for a final two in final two. David. Yeah, yeah. A final you, you one here. Tonight, I'll be watching. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, Kansas. Good morning, Sirius XM Channel One Nineteen. Lawrence. Lawrence. Yeah. Kansas getting it done. Huge. <laughs> Purdue boiler down. That's it. I'm done with the brackets. David, continue. Yeah. UNC continues. <laughs> Dominant. Tom tries to pull himself back. Uh, together. We're looking ahead to next Wednesday. That's when the, the UK is uh, expected to trigger Article 50. Uh, and you've been thinking a lot about just what happens next here, uh, sort of working with them on, on an exit from the, for the European Union, but also trade deal as well. How, how mammoth an undertaking is this going to I be? I think it's very mammoth. Yeah. And there, we're trying to do a lot in a very, very short period of time. So even negotiating the exit and the cost of the exit and, and what does it mean for EU citizens living in the UK and how are they going to be able to fill out those 85 pages to maintain... Uh, uh, rights to live in the UK. And it, it is just massive. And then trying to negotiate access, uh, whether it's to the single market or in a free trade agreement, and what does that mean for the mobility of people? 
also at a time when we're going to have elections in France and elections in Germany. This is very difficult to do, and the attempt is to complete it um, by the fall yeah. of 2018 into 2019. What is the opportunity in European mm. equities? Let's review this. They give me a bigger dividend as a general statement. That's a general statement. They don't do share buybacks as a general <laughs> statement like we do. So the all-in cash-on-cash yield day one, January 1 of every year, what is it, about the same as we are, or is it less? Well, the blended dividend and share buybacks, are they... Are they the same or are they less? Well, they've been less and it's been um, problematic for investors. But what you also have to recognize is that cyclically, Europe is in a good part of the cycle. Um, If it wasn't for some of this political risk, I think European equities would be higher from here. you know, weaker currencies have been helpful, particularly you think about the UK and investors ask why the FTSE do so well in the aftermath of Brexit. And a lot of those companies are um, exporters. Um, weaker pound, weaker euro has been beneficial to to export oriented companies. Um, again, um, the cycle's helpful, policies accommodative and expectations are lower. So, you know, international markets don't necessarily always have to underperform. Um, I think investors over the last number of years have come around to the idea that the U.S. is the only game in town, and that's not necessarily true. Did you watch the game last night, Tom? I watched a little bit okay. of it. I had a <laughs> early running, on the running report were there. Yeah. from our executive producer. Okay, she was keeping you apprised. Basket by, you know, <laughs> dunk by dunk. It was like a Dunkelberg game, oh. talking to our NFIB uh, expert uh, as well. I, you know, it'll be fun. I mean, this weekend, when is North Carolina play? Tonight at 7, 7 Tonight o'clock hour, so you don't have to stay up too late for me. Is that like a that. Madison? I know they're at Madison Square Garden. I think that's so, right. Yeah, yeah. You're going to head down? I don't know. Well, I don't know. We'll it's get a, tickets. Tom thought. and I will be there. Brian Levitt uh, with us with Oppenheimer Funds. What's the mystery right now for investors? Is it you and I talked earlier about investing without a risk-free rate, investing within a great distortion, central banks, the massive yield divergence worldwide. What's the mystery out there that we haven't talked about? I think the biggest mystery for investors is whether or not we can actually do better than 2% real GDP growth in the United States. And, um, you know, the on the on the campaign trail, the idea of, of make America great again, I mean, I had the opportunity to see uh, Donald Trump speak at the Economic Club of New York. Uh-huh. And, and one of the comments was, we're going to have four or five, six percent GDP growth, right? And and how do you get there? Um, I mean, I've joked. You you either have to have a lot of thirty-year-olds, um, big gains in productivity, or some policy that could be a catalyst forward. So, um, are we? Do we remain in this slow growth world? No cycle, no monetary tightening, or do we actually have a catalyst to drive uh, drive the economy and markets higher? All right, there's the mystery. What do you think about it? Well, I think we're struggling with the yeah. realities of it. And um, my I don't believe that this is the end of a bull market. Yeah. In my mind, bull markets don't end with most Americans not liking equities. Now, we've become more optimistic lately, but that's only after eight years of hating this. Um, and so I don't believe that bull markets are going to end with most Americans not participating. Leading indicators of the U.S. OK, actually been pretty good um, in Federal Reserve that's going to tr- probably do this at a more measured pace. To me, that's not how cycles end. Um, I just think that we're now taking back some of the optimism um, that we had uh, experienced in the aftermath of the election. How worried are you about political risk? And uh, you look to Europe, had the election, the Netherlands looking ahead to the election uh, in France. What does the, the election in the Netherlands tell you 
about the election in France and indeed how big a risk is that well I think the event is the uh, is the French election I think the election in the Netherlands was the first um, of its kind of first major hallmark uh, vote that didn't go in the direction of less Europe or national populism Um, and so from Brexit to Donald Trump the natural extension was the Netherlands and now France does it make it an outlier or does it it tell you there's a reverse well we'll We'll find find out out. I mean I think we've all uh, gotten to the point now where we don't want to make predictions on politics anymore in the aftermath of Brexit and Trump's victory. Uh, We will see. I mean, uh, Marine Le Pen in France has polled High, it's higher in the polls. Um, obviously, it remains to be seen if, if she can win a runoff in the French elections. And and she's not running to be dictator of France, right? So should we help, we'll have to work within the system there, the same way Donald Trump is working in the system in the United States. So there are checks and balances. But clearly, the election of Le Pen, a more Eurosceptic, um, would be viewed negatively by markets, at least in the near term. Do you have to diversify as much internationally, or do you diversify across companies? Is it sector bets or is it still, you know, investment 101 that we knew 20 years ago where you pick a country? Well, I think investors for the first, the first thing investors should do is if they do have a plan, they should be consistent because far too often investors are trying to chase performance in a particular size, style, region. And what you find, we find, we run uh, the, the largest emerging markets fund um, in the industry. What we find is um, outflows when things are getting better um, and inflows um, when things have already got, you know, gotten good. So we tell investors to be consistent with their plan. If I look at the world, um, and I look at world market capitalization, I want to think about core allocation to equities. Emerging markets are about 15% of that. International markets, depending on where we are, 35 40% of that. So to only invest in the United States would be akin to only investing east or west of the Mississippi. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, we think there's great companies all around the world, and we, we like to take a view um, on those companies all around the world. When you look at two emerging markets in the Pacific, what, what stands out to you right now? What's attractive in that space, which we can paint with such a, a broad brush? Well, I mean, when you're, if you're going to paint it with a broad brush, what yeah. stands out is that cyclically those economies are improving. Um, you know, you've seen a massive policy response from China and you've seen um, growth uh, trend higher there, growth trend higher in places like India and Russia and others. Um, you've seen inflation come down. You have positive real yields. I mean, the, people often say to me, how could I be in emerging markets if the Fed going to raise rates and scale back their balance sheet. When they attempted to do that in 2014, 2015, 2016, EM sold off. But that was when EM was in a worse part of the cycle. That was when real yields weren't positive in the emerging markets. It's a very different story today. And emerging markets have been powering through, even as the Fed signals three interest rate hikes this year. Brian Levitt, thank you for the briefing thank you. with Oppenheimer Funds uh, this morning. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Uh, Joining us now, thoughtful discussion on a Friday with Peter Tay. We're just going to stop things and stop with the news flow. (laughs) Maybe actually talk about the longer perspective. How many miles do you fly a year across this nation (laughs) looking for deals? Do you have a number? 
I don't, but I fly probably 150 or 200 days a year. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you're out there. I don't want to talk about Warren Buffett's size. I don't want to talk about the size that gets you in the headlines of Wall Street M&A. I want to talk about an average industrial company out there. Nobody listening knows the name of it. They've decided they've got to do a transaction to better everyone, the shareholders. Probably there's some senior officials that want to cash out, if you will. Is the dialogue the same now as it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago? That's a really good question. Um, I would argue that uh, I would argue that at some level it's identical, which is that I think 99% of all M&A transactions are driven by some strategic imperative, which genuinely makes sense. Uh, I do think that in an environment where we have so much volatility and so much uncertainty, uh, and that change and surprise yeah. has become a backdrop we all have to deal with, I think parts of the dialogue have changed. And that company has their competitors, publicly traded competitors, private equity, and you know how dumb they are, <laughs> and foreign <laughs> investors as well, right? So you've got, you've got like eight more phone calls to make than you had to make 20 years ago. There's, there's, plenty, of, there's plenty of competition for assets, um, and there, is, there are plenty of assets coming to market. So one of the things that uh, I was actually just discussing with a client uh, yesterday, actually, is that we we are in a world today where every single asset, every single opportunity for an M&A trade is effectively auctioned. Auctioned and priced. The market has become so efficient. I was making a joke there about private equity, Mr. <laughs> uh, you know, the emails me. are flying <laughs> into your God, I hate me. I'm going to have death threats uh, now. But, but seriously, private equity can be a very shrewd, skill-based expertise. How have they changed the dialogue for publicly traded companies if you're competing against, just to take a, a, a name, Carlisle? Well, I think, I, think that, uh, I think there was a period of time where private equity, frankly, had a pretty easy time of it. Um, companies, and, and I'm, I'm able to go back to the 80s. Um, not, <laughs> yeah, I'm not. That's companies <laughs> companies had, had a great deal of, uh, of opportunity for, for cost-cutting, for restructuring, financial engineering. These days, the degree of sophistication in the way these companies are run, uh, we were talking earlier, Tom, about the sophistication of, of the management teams in today's, uh, today's Fortune 500 companies so much higher. I think they've got a much tougher job making money. Mm -hmm. And we obviously have a very, very friendly financing backdrop, but we haven't seen uh, financial sponsor M&A dominate the market. Here we are four months in uh, to 2017. You've given us a, a peek at the landscape. How does it look for, for M&A? How is how's the M&A business doing four months in? Well, uh, if, if we just take a look at the activity levels, uh, January was uh, smoking hot. February really went into a lull. And the first part of March, in the first two weeks of March, we made up all the February volume. Wow. So it, 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 uh, it's been fairly volatile. Um, it's been we're running at volume levels that are roughly 10 percent ahead of last year, so a little bit ahead. Um, overall activity levels in terms of number of transactions roughly flat. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say that it's it's steady. Um, we have seen some bigger transactions come through, and probably mm -hmm. the the thing that surprised me more than anything else has been how prominent cross-border deals have been in the Interesting. market. Let's come back and talk about that. Peter Tag with us with Citigroup, uh, taking a look at the more international landscape. I mentioned Mr. Buffett earlier uh, with his assistance from Brazil Capital, uh, among others. That's a theme that's clearly out there. Peter uh, Tag with us with Citigroup. 
in mergers and acquisitions. Uh, when when foreign money comes in, how do they acquire management expertise? How do they make smart decisions, given they've got a million or a gajillion dollars? How do they affect a smart review to choose what to do with all that money? Well, I think uh, I think that management teams and talent generally has become a theme in uh, has become a theme in M and A, and I think companies. Uh, I'm speaking broadly. Companies have have become aware of the importance of both operational talent and managerial talent uh, in terms of making transactions successful. So it ends up where today, and you you asked me earlier, Tom, about differences between the the market today and the market of yesterday. I think one of the things that has really changed is the focus which our clients have on talent um, and how that can make a difference in success or failure in a transaction. Mm-hmm. Talk about the, the, the role the elections played, this new uh, administration in Washington, D.C. Aside from the regulatory space, what that's meaning for, for M&A right now, you see someone like Ajit Pai being named to head the FCC. How's that changing the, the possibility for, for M&A, the people who are put in place uh, not to approve uh, these, these deals necessarily, but just to sort of set the, set the landscape in Washington? Yeah, I think, I think uh, some of the names that have been put forward in the, in the regulatory landscape um, are broadly seen as uh, more constructive for the transactional environment than, uh, than the prior administration's choices. Uh, that said, um, it remains to be seen how, how things play out, and, and I'm quite confident that things are always going to get evaluated on a case-by-case basis. Did it's, you see how smooth he was, was very answering smooth. that question? Constructive. He, it's <laughs> amazing how he can insult President Obama without sounding like an insult. Is there much continuity, though, between administrations? In other words, how radical is the change usually when you have a different administration coming in? Well, of course, most of the people uh, that work in justice or staff attorneys, they're, they're staff, yeah. and they're still there. And, uh, and frankly, we're all glad of that because the expertise is, uh, is specific, and we, we depend on that knowledge and expertise because uh, as we affect transactions, if, if a new administration meant you had to have a whole new group get completely re-edu- re-educated, nothing would ever get done. So uh, we're, we're quite pleased by that continuity. You know, uh, we hear a lot about the, the soft data Across the board, from small companies to big companies, as you talk to clients and, and executives, what are they saying about the prospects for for the economy going forward? I think there's an awful lot of optimism yeah. uh, right now about about the prospects for the economy. I'm, the the basic principles of the Trump administration uh, platform has been fiscal stimulus, uh, deregulation, and tax reform, all of which are broadly good for business, and all of which broadly are uh, are good for M and A. How big a variable is is what the Federal Reserve is doing? How concerned are, are your clients about rates going up? Honestly, not very not concerned. Yeah. Um, I mean, the uh, you know, I guess the, the current betting is on three rate rises for the year, um, but frankly, yeah. hikes of that nature are barely I think putting we, a dent. We, we ought to start interviewing M and A guys to do economics. You know, just because we're so far from any neutral rate, we're so far yeah. from restrictive. In uh, and, and, and such, help me with with the CFO reality. If we finally get a vector of higher rates, what is your experience of how CFOs act when we begin to see rising rates? Is it everybody's on the phone? Let's go, let's go, let's go. Is it is it lemmings off the cliff? Do they become defensive? What do they do? No, I I I, I think it's uh, as long as as long as the rate rises and the rate environment is reasonably predictable, 
I don't think it changes much at all. In other words, I think we can we can see a much higher rate environment, frankly, yeah. and still expect that we would have a fairly robust M&A backdrop to that. That's because it, it all boils into valuation. It all boils into planning. And as long as what what what's crushes our business is uncertainty and uh, and unpredictability. And so I think what we're looking at right now is an environment which is uh, which is broadly predictable. Mm. So come on, this president's predictable <laughs> and uh, diminishes uncertainty. But you raise a good point. Um, of course, I was specifically talking about the rate environment. Right. I was um, making it. It's Friday. I'm making a joke. Uh, but I do think, <laughs> I do think that, uh, I do think that, that um, again, if, if, the, if this president can affect change off the platform that he has articulated, and so far I think he is working hard to make that happen, I think that's going to be a good environment for, uh, for business and for m and just read a headline a few minutes ago about SoftBank and this new $100 billion vision fund that it's, it's created. When a variable like that is introduced, how does that change exactly. the, the M&A well space? Said, well, said. Uh, well uh, there have been uh, some very large pools of capital formed uh, over the last five, pretty much pr- since the crisis. We've had uh, an astonishing rise of some very large pools of capital. It absolutely affects the market in the sense that whether it's very large private equity funds, very large sovereign wealth funds, the Vision Fund, um, those pools of capital are looking to go to work. That has definitely had an impact on valuations. It has definitely had an impact on the way we think about auctioning assets, in other words, broadening the base of potential acquirers for assets. Uh, But frankly, uh, I wouldn't say that it has been catalytic in the sense that I don't think that's the reason why we've had a strong M&A market for the last few years, not that alone anyway. When someone says the word, one final question, when someone says the word synergy, which is a word I hate, what does synergy mean to a grizzled pro like you? (laughs) You're sitting in some office and some you're exhausted. You had to go through O'Hare and sit on the runway for three. You don't have a Gulfstream, do you? You can use not. ours. I, I was just going to say, can yeah. I borrow yours? No, well, we have a G3. It's not a G5, yeah. but that's okay. But, right you know, you're, you're on a plane delay in O'Hare. You finally get to where you're going. You're going to do a transaction. And they're like, synergy. What is? How do you handle that question about we need synergies? Well, uh, there's a short answer and there's a long answer. The short answer is synergy, if that broadly is defined as the benefits associated with pushing two companies together. If there wasn't a benefit, we wouldn't be doing the transaction. And that would certainly curtail my level of personal activity. Isn't it just French for cost cutting? It can be. Um, but I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to get behind the notion that that's all it means. Mm. Okay, we've had a number of interviews, particularly in Davos, about the, I mean, Sir Martin Sorrell's on this. The religion of cost-cutting is the be-all and end-all, not only to transactions, to be fair, but just to modern business. Do you see that? Cost-cutting is the religion? I think cost-cutting's been the religion of modern business since the financial crisis. Um, I think cost-cutting in an environment where many, many companies pulled in their horns, decided they needed to deleverage, Transactional activity was sharply curtailed by the crisis. Um, I think cost-cutting became the watchword, and I think it has remained a watchword. But that said, I think the inability of many companies to continue indefinitely to drive cost-cutting is one of the things that's been very, very good for the M&A markets over the last several years. It strikes me where there is uncertainty is in the tax space and in the trade space, that you know, we hear Washington talking about doing certain things, but retaliation there might be as a result of that. 
how worried are you about that affecting cross-border deals going forward? I, I agree with you. I think uh, I think those are the two the two biggest question marks uh, for my business. Um, what I would say is, right now, the market hasn't seen anything or heard anything um, that is close enough on the horizon and definite enough for it to take specific action. Mm. I do think that if uh, if we get to a point later in this year or next year where tax reform has firmed up in a way that it is easier to identify what the changes are that are going to get made, and it really it starts to be close right. enough that it's in the it's it's right over our, it's right in the near term landscape. It could really affect okay. the business. Very generous with your yes, time this morning, Peter. Take thank you so much. We're sitting here. We don't do enough of this, folks, just to talk about mergers and acquisitions, and I. Much more like the phrase transactions and combinations, which I think goes much more to the behavioral aspect. Is companies actually have to talk to each other to get this done. It's not as clinical as m <laughs> um, It is very important to regroup at 9.30 on a Friday. Get ready for the thinking of the weekend. David Gurr, one of the great moments coming up, not this weekend, is John Tucker, the opening of the 401k envelope yeah. to see the agony. <laughs> I'll in hold your hand, Tom. <laughs> no, well, my, my 401k is a double leveraged all, all cash, cash fund, yeah. which yeah, is yeah. fine. But Tucker's like actually in the market. And yeah. We'll see what his agony is, which means it's a good time to talk to Julian Emanuel of UBS <laughs> on the use of synthetics, derivatives, and also within the equity market. Just as a general uh, rule, Julian, uh, we've heard interview after interview over the last five or six years. It's a single digit world. 12 months trailing, the Dow up 18%. The S&P 500 up 15%. The NASDAQ comp up 22%. Apple infected. In all that, that's not a single-digit world, is it? No. And the whole concept of markets being single-digit world, you look at the long-run average, the number is 8% or whatever, but gains tend to come in clusters. And you know that's why, to us, despite the fact that we think the market is is probably not on as uh, firmer ground in the near term because of a number of things, you need to stay uh, invested here. So I know you don't like to talk individual stocks. There's a compliance issue in general counsel and, and all that. But if I look at a major toothpaste company, it's trading at a 26 multiple. If you gross out this year, maybe it's a 25 multiple. Is that nifty 50 like? Is there a parallel even before my ute back to the glory of Mad Men? Are we living in a Mad Men valuation? Uh, Toothpaste is expensive. Um, At at this point, there are lots of, of pockets in the market that are at historically high valuations. And that is part of our concern in the near term, particularly since first quarter GDP doesn't look as strong as uh, perhaps the Fed would have wanted. But there's also areas, financials, healthcare, technology, that are reasonably valued. And and David, I bring this up because the Nifty 50 valuation came out of the Eisenhower deflation and disinflation of the early 50s. And there's a little bit, I don't want to overplay this because it's a completely different world than it used to be. But nevertheless, there's that inflation parallel there, if you would. What's your outlook for inflation? How much is that that weighing on the decisions you're making right now? Uh, We think ultimately you're going to arrive at the Fed's 2% number. 
Uh, we think there's not going to be a ton of volatility in terms of inflation. The Fed has said that they're, they're going to let it creep north of two, south of two, uh, et cetera. But, you know, ultimately for us, the important thing going forward in, in a world where, you know, 3% and above GDP is just not the, the, the glide path anymore. The Fed's telling you the number is two. We think it's uh, 2.4 uh, this year and 2.5 next year. You need to stick with companies that can grow their earnings in that type of environment. Yeah, this is becoming, I think, a theme on the show today, Tom, the, 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 the new expectations for GDP. Of course, we heard the, the candidate Trump saying that we could see 4 oh. or 5%. Okay, uh, everyone but, reevaluating but, that. But everybody's reevaluating it, but uh, it, I don't mean to interrupt, David. But <laughs> Julian, it's a fan distribution. There's a lot of different yeah. opinions about what GDP is going to do. Let's be clear on that. No, no question about it. And again, part of the concern for us right now is, is the fact that uh, there's this unexplained sort of softness in the consumer in the first quarter, and you've seen the wobbles in the credit markets, and you've seen oil sell, sell off. Is there more to it than meets the eye? The Fed hasn't intimated that there is, but I think the, the economic data over the next several weeks is going to be very important to watch. You say you see opportunities in financials. Is that uh, based on valuations? Is that based on the, the, the prospects for regulatory change? Why is the sector attractive to you? It, it's, right re it's really in all of the above. Yeah. And uh, Tom talked about uh, our derivatives background. For us, the, the four or five reasons catalyst for financials, what we would call is sort of a portfolio of call options, it's interest rates, it's deregulation, it is the fact that after 10 years of inherent entrenched bearishness on the part of investors in the sector, that's unwinding and that's a slow process. Um, and, and despite the fact that the yield curve has come in incrementally over the last several months, you're still at, uh, at uh, points on, on the curve where banks can make plenty of money. Your brief is uh, is domestic, of course, but I wonder how you're reacting to what we're seeing from Credit Suisse and from from Deutsche Bank. We're seeing this the dilution to them trying to raise uh, money. What, how, how do you how do you process what's happening over in Europe? Well, I, I think you know that kind of activity. What it tells you is that if anything, it's trying to prepare for a more competitive environment versus the U.S. banks, because in a deregulating Washington. The banks in the U.S. are going to be on a firmer footing, so it, it's it's really sort of upping the the arms in the in the artillery uh, to compete. We talk about deregulation uh, in Washington with with a broad brush, and I I wonder so what would make a, a notional difference to you or, or to these banks rather to you know if if we see regulation scaled back. Uh, what's likely to happen, do you think, and how much of a difference can that make? Uh, we don't think there's going to be what I would call an aha moment. They're not rolling back Dodd-Frank no. in, in completed two. There's no question about it. But what, what would be interesting would be to see the stop in the bull market of hiring of compliance people. Okay, that's a real bull that, market. It, that that has been the major bull market in the financial business for the last six or seven years. <clears throat> when when I look, uh, Julian, at what to do and what not to do mm. within the blur of investment choices. What's the thing you want to avoid right now with long-term investment money? You, you absolutely have to have emotional control here, Tom. You, you will hear stories when the market is running like this, your neighbor, the guy down the street, whatever, great stories, this stock, that stock. You At, at almost yeah. uh, 19 times uh, 2017, I you have to maintain discipline is, and control. Is the dumbest idea to like actually write down the valuation with the bear market 18% move down and say, can I live with that? Because 
a lot of people listening don't even know what a bear market is anymore. They don't have they don't have a collective memory to recall that. Well, we we're not looking for the bear market. I agree. Now, that. No, but but, but you got to mentally be framed for it. Absolutely. So what we're telling people is we're thinking that there's a five to ten percent correction in here. What you have to do is look at your portfolio now and say to yourself, if we're down ten, am I a buyer? Okay. And if you're not. You need to get to sort of the sleeping point, whether it's yeah. raising cash or owning some put options. This is great conversation, particularly for Fridays. And John Tucker, I don't know if John Tucker's listening today, but uh, Michael Barr, it's always good. We sedate Mr. Tucker. We have the opening of the 401k envelope. <laughs> and, and Mr. Tucker, all, always good for entertainment. Uh, yes. We'll be doing that. I believe it's next week. It could be the week following with uh, Hi, sir, our good colleague, John <laughs> yeah. uh, Tucker. Julian Emanuel with us. Of UBS as we close out here and get to the get uh, to the weekend. The weekend. Um, <laughs> help me here with the great debate. At U- and UBS is so good at this. I mean, I think of the heritage of Jonathan Anderson uh, years ago with UBS in China. Help me with the decision I have to make to do a domestic vanilla value growth portfolio, or in the old days, I'm going to dip into the foreign markets four or five percent. We don't do that anymore. We actually go into the foreign markets, which is which foreign market? Where's the which of big blue chip foreign stocks, emerging markets, China, something esoteric? What's the way to go there? So, so this is one of these times where after hiding in the U.S. for as long as people have, you should be looking elsewhere. EM in general is sort of recovering. If you look at China, you know, given the fact that you've got a very important party Congress this fall, there's an argument to be made that things are going to stay on the straight and narrow there. The numbers have been pretty good. And then finally, there's Europe. We think that the gap in terms of valuation and in terms of earnings potential uh, in Europe makes it attractive despite the political risk. So, you know, Mm -hmm. that's part of building a diversified portfolio particularly at these valuations in the U.S. Help us with the timing of doing that. We were talking earlier just about all the uh, the potential changes we could see when it comes to trade policy or tax policy. When you look internationally, how much does that weigh on your decision-making? Uh, it definitely doesn't. So, you know, instead of... Uh, you take you take an incrementalist approach. You figure out where you want to be in terms of your portfolio allocation and, uh, you know, whatever that number is, and you, you do it in, in stages. Um, and, and, and when you have patience like that, you can really let the market come to you. So if we get a little bit more volatility in front of the French elections, that's when you add to Europe. How much are you paying attention to what's going on in Washington today? I talked about tax reform and, and trade policy. Does this portend anything about what's going to happen with those two other things? The debate over health care, the fact that this, this vote has been postponed here by 12, 15 hours? We, we do not put a lot of credence in the idea that if this vote doesn't go the president's way, the tax reform is dead. If you look at the last year or so, the resilience of, of, of Donald Trump his ideas, his approach, what have you. I mean, we've been surprised constantly. He's going to push forward with with tax reform. It's going to take a while, but there will be a vote at some point. When you say that, does UBS assume we will see the benefit of corporate tax reform that finally gets our corporations to compete with the rest of the world? Or are we talking personal tax reform? Well, we do think that ultimately, if there is going to be a passed bill, um, you know, either late this year or early next year. There will, will be elements of both. The politicians are trying to get it all done. As so it's a, like a Tax Reform Act of 76, 78 kind of feel. Yeah, 
Yeah, it, it does have the potential there's to a be tip a game. There's a Tip O'Neill down there willing to work. Uh, Hiding well, out in the Hawk and Dove waiting to... Yeah. <laughs> The, the pro that that's the problem right now. The problem is is Where's that the tip is that the Republicans yeah. are not unified enough, let alone reaching across the aisle. Is gridlock good for the stock market? Uh, at this that's point, a, I would. Frank, excuse me. That was the best question. Why are you make a note? That was the best question of the week. Continue. We, so so we at this point we would say it isn't. Okay, there are times when it it has proven, and look again, up two hundred and fifty percent since the lows in two thousand nine, when you went through years of essentially gridlock um, on a lot of big issues. But now, at these valuations, at this lower mm-hmm. growth trajectory, we've got to find new solutions. In the final minute we've got with you. Let's get a little technical here. The pros talk about buying volatility, going long volatility. It's awfully. Do I just assume there's more agitation to come? We think there is. It is really that this standoff in volatility is basically predicated, and this is now four and a half months since the election of the VIX not trading above 15. Very, very rare in history. But that is because basically when you look at it, the market has been supported by steady, unspectacular, but steady public inflows against a a professional investment community that is waiting to see whether the plans that have been put out there and the ideas can actually execute. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Julian Emanuel. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.